welcome to this episode of Motherkind, the show that gives you all the tools, ideas, and validation that you need as you navigate your life as a mother. Sometimes the hardest things that we face are also the things that we most need to talk about because it's often those things that we don't have the words for. Sophie Martin, in her job as a midwife, helps women every day achieve their dream of motherhood, all while having faced unbelievable challenges on her own journey to motherhood. 11 rounds of IVF and the tragic loss of two babies. Sophie shares with us what we all need to know, because even if we haven't experienced loss or IVF or miscarriage ourselves, then we know someone who has. And it is so easy to say completely the wrong thing. Please share this episode. This education just isn't out there, but we can get it out there. Please share this episode with at least three people in your life who you think need to know what Sophie shares with us. Here it is. Sophie, I, when I read your story, it made me think of the word courage. And I think it takes so much courage to go through what you went through and share it with the world to help others. Where do you think that courage came from? It actually didn't feel very courageous at all. It felt just very much like something that I had to do. It felt very normal to be speaking about it and something that I wanted. When I was going through infertility, I wanted to speak to other people because I just felt so alone and I wanted other women to share their experiences because I wanted to know that I wasn't the only person living through infertility. And I think also when you're a midwife, you're used to talking about things which are not necessarily dinner time conversation, although for us, it's completely normal. But you know, we're used to talking about periods, we're used to talking about kind of things that other people might think gross, like bodily fluids, you know, all of that is very normal to us. And so that part of it never felt like an issue, like my mum's a midwife. So we're kind of very open about that sort of thing. So it felt quite normal. And I felt very lucky that I was in a position, I guess, of privilege because I am a medical professional. So I think people respect your voice, which is really lovely. So I think that I felt very fortunate that if I spoke, then people would listen, I guess. So I understand that is a very privileged position, but I feel like I wanted to share with people that yes, I'm a midwife, but also I'm a patient too. And actually I could really see from being a patient that there were lots of things wrong with the medical system. What did you experience was wrong? So after we'd been trying for a baby for nearly a year and we went to see our GP and I was devastated. And as soon as I sat in the chair, I burst into tears. I was so upset. And the GP just turned around and she was young and she didn't mean any harm at all, but she just turned around and went, oh, you're only young, so it'll be fine. And actually it wasn't fine. I've been through 11 rounds of IVF. I wouldn't say that that was fine. And she went, oh, you're younger than me. So I think it'll be fine. And it really just diminished my experience of trying for a baby. You know, I'd been trying for a long time and it hadn't happened, but because I was younger than her, then it'd probably be okay. Or it really wasn't okay. That was just the very first time that we went to the GP and it kind of, and I don't think we had a particularly bad experience, but on the whole, but I just think there were so many points along the way that People just don't understand infertility enough. I think that's right. And I've had a few friends go through IVF. And I'll be honest, I was so naive to what it really entailed. I think so was I. Yeah, until people close to me went through it. So what do you wish with your work and the message that you're trying to get out there? What do you wish that people knew more about 
IVF and what the process is actually like of infertility? I think there is definitely much greater awareness at the moment, which is really good. But I think there's sometimes a misconception that it's a lifestyle choice. And I did not choose to be infertile. That would not be a choice that I made. I don't think anyone would choose that. And so people can see IVF as a lifestyle choice. Whereas actually infertility is defined by the World Health Organization as a disease of the reproductive system. And so if you're infertile, you have a disease. Obviously, disease is obviously a spectrum and I can live my everyday life and I have a very happy and lucky life. But it also means that there is a part of my body which isn't working as it should be. And then I think in terms of actual IVF, I don't think people realise quite how gruelling it is, both physically and emotionally, how long it lasts, how much waiting there is, how expensive it is. I mean, I will admit that for midwives, there's very little training on IVF. I really didn't know very much about it at all, which is shocking. And so when I was living through it, it was just so eye-opening. I think a lot of the time, midwives won't understand what the medications are. Like our education on infertility is very poor. And what do you think the impact of that is? What was the impact on you personally? So as a midwife, I realised that there was just a massive gap in my practice. It's very difficult to support people who are pregnant with IVF babies if you don't really understand what the process is or what it's taken them to get to that point. And I will absolutely admit that I have made loads of mistakes along the way. So I think sometimes midwives are guilty of thinking, oh, well, you're pregnant now. So great. Like, that's what your focus should be on. But for some people, myself included, the scars from infertility are so kind of dug into your skin that actually once you're pregnant, you still quite can't believe that that's happening. And it might for some people have been so traumatic to go through IVF that it actually tarnishes the pregnancy in in some ways and that you don't quite trust your body to do what it needs to do and carry the most precious cargo that you ever have. So I feel like it's helped me because I'm a much better practitioner now, but I shouldn't have had to have lived through it to understood that. It should have just been part of my training. And then as a person, I think that, and again, I've been guilty of doing all of these things, but, you know, asking like, when are you going to have a baby? Before I had infertility, I would have asked that question. And now I realise that that's just so inappropriate to be asking those sorts of questions. Obviously, I didn't know any better. Yeah, I remember between my first and second, we had two miscarriages. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, really traumatic. And someone asked me, when are you going to have another? I remember thinking, I didn't say anything, but I remember thinking if you had any idea what was going on, you wouldn't ask that question. And I made a note to myself then, I will never, ever ask about anyone's intention to have a baby, the timeline to do that, if they want to do that, ever because you have no idea what is going on for someone in their very private life. It's private, isn't it? Who we choose to share that with. And you talked about some of the scars of IVF. Do you feel comfortable talking about those? What are some of the scars that the process left on you? So it meant that when I did finally fall pregnant with my son, Percy, I was so incredibly anxious during the pregnancy. Looking back, I was extremely unwell and I could not relax at all. In fact, I spent every day of my pregnancy thinking that my son was going to die. There was no point where I thought that this baby would come home. And actually, I would say that even for the first year of his life, I felt that either he was going to die or someone was going to take him away because I was so used to things going quite catastrophically wrong for us that I couldn't believe that something so amazing as my son would be allowed to be in my life. That's heartbreaking. I'm so sorry that you had that. Do you feel comfortable talking about the twins, about Cecil and Wilfred? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it wasn't just infertility that obviously made me so anxious in pregnancy. As you mentioned, I did have identical twin sons. So my very first round of IVF, I had one embryo transferred, which split into two. And so I was pregnant with identical twins. And I was very anxious during that pregnancy that something was going to go wrong. Because again, from infertility, I didn't feel that I was lucky or worthy enough to have something so special as identical twins. I felt that maybe I wasn't supposed to be a mother because I had needed help having a baby. And very unfortunately, I went into labor when I was 21 weeks pregnant, which is before viability. So my sons both died after they were born. And obviously that was just completely devastating. So it was almost like I thought that I wasn't worthy and then proved it as well. It was heartbreaking. I'm so sorry that you that you had that. How did you grieve that? I think I would say that grief is an ongoing process. So I would say I'm still grieving. I would say that I will forever be grieving them because they are such an important part of our life. I think I was very much focused on having a living baby. And so straight away, that was my focus. And I would say that I very much was trying to balance the grief because I knew it was going to be such a long road to having a, another child that I was almost trying to just put all of my energy into that because I knew that it was going to take me so much to get there that I didn't want to have to spend lots of time with the grief. So I think, yeah, grief is an ongoing process. As you're going through all of this, you know, it's almost mind blowing because your work, you know, what you're passionate about and you're trained in and you have to do to earn a living was in delivering babies as a midwife how on earth did you hold the grief and the trauma and the pain and the fear with showing up for other women who are doing the very thing that you so desperately want but haven't got yet I went back to work quite quickly after I had the twins I went back seven weeks after I gave birth to them and part of that was because I wanted some normality back so I really wanted my old life back, although I understood that my life would never be the same again. I was trying to get back to that place of this is what my life is. And so I went back to work, yes, seven weeks after I had my twins. And I gave birth at the hospital that I worked with. And so that was an added layer because obviously the labour ward is where my sons were born and then died. And so I found it very, very difficult to go to labour ward. In fact, I avoided it at all costs. And I ended up doing a lot of antenatal care. I think, again, the point of like proving that I was worthy, I wanted to prove that I was a good person, that I was a good midwife. And I wanted other women to never have to live through any of the horrible things that I went through, which meant keeping them as safe as possible. And so firstly, it's my job. So I wanted to a earn a living, but also it was my passion. And I wanted to be a midwife for such a long time. And so I didn't want that to all be taken away just by this one event that had happened. And I also did suspect that it would perhaps help me to be a better midwife as well. How did it help you be a better midwife? I think I'm much more aware of language, although I'm not perfect. No one is perfect, but I do try really hard to think about the language that I use with patients. That's not to say I do get it right all the time because I definitely don't, but I think about it a lot more in a way that I wouldn't have before. And then also I think when you're looking after patients with more complex routes to parenthood, I think this has definitely helped me because Although I might not have the same lived experience, I can understand some of the emotional impact. And that's not to say that you have to have lived through something like this to be a good midwife, not at all. But I think that for me, it's helped me. Tell me about some of those language shifts, because I think, you know, when I experienced those miscarriages, even that word miscarriage felt like it was blaming me. 
somehow that I had missed something. And I'm wondering what are some of the other language things that you struggle with and how do we move this on so that this language isn't a barrier to women shaming themselves even more when they're going through something as hard as, you know, miscarriage or loss or infertility? Again, I can really relate to that because on my discharge paperwork after I had my twins, it said late miscarriage. So I had my twins at 21 weeks on a labor ward. I went through a labor. I gave birth to them both vaginally. I had to deliver the placenta. It was literally the same as other labors and it was called a late miscarriage. And I found it so hugely offensive because A, I didn't feel like it was a miscarriage, but also B, it implied that I was late. So I couldn't even be on time to my own son's death. And it just felt like a real punch that that's what it was labeled. And so I would never, ever use that terminology. I find it so offensive. So for me, I prefer second trimester loss because I feel that's more reflective of my experience or perhaps early premature birth, just to highlight that it was very early. But there's loads of things that we use in obstetrics, which are just plain offensive. So failed induction, failure to progress, incompetent cervix. I mean, we know medicine and obstetrics is very patriarchal. Men were doctors, weren't they? And so that's where it's all come from. And it's just a complete lack of insight. And I'm, I write about this in my book, but you would never say that a man had an incompetent penis if he had erectile dysfunction. But you would say that a woman had incompetent cervix rather than cervical dysfunction. So the blame language just lies all with the women. Even little ones, that it's only when you think about them, like waters breaking. It's like they're not breaking, they're doing what they're meant to do, they're releasing. And I think when you get into this language, you realise it is everywhere, isn't it? What are some of the things that, you know, you do talk about this in the book, what are some of the things that women and your community have told you really don't work for them? in the language anymore? Are there common threads that you hear? So I think the notion about failure, no one wants to be called a failure, do they? I mean, why on earth are we still using that language nowadays? Like I said, failed induction, failure to progress, was just unacceptable. There's definitely been a change in some language. So I hear a lot of women calling themselves geriatric, whereas actually in practice, I never see any practitioners saying that. So we would say advanced maternal age, whereas I see a lot of women calling themselves that like, is this a geriatric pregnancy? And and actually, I find that quite jarring. And so that's because historically, it would have been referred to as geriatric pregnancy. And that language still hangs around, despite in practice, actually, medical people, I don't see using that, which I'm really reassured, like that makes me happy. But I feel that women are so used to having that blame field language that they've absorbed that. And so they're referring to themselves as geriatric, which is an awful way to refer to yourself, especially when you're really not geriatric when you're 35 or 40, are you? You're it's not geriatric at all. Yeah, it's so true. I don't know what you think about this, but I notice how casually, you, you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about the twins, you know, late. She was three days late. And I was thinking, isn't that interesting? How can someone be late to their own birth? Like surely they are right on time. Even this language that is so normalized, oh, I was two days late, I was two weeks late, I was this early. What do you think about the language that isn't medicalized as much, that's just so in our lexicon, that I still think is just this very subtle, you're not doing it right messaging? Yeah, that's so interesting. It's so funny because we know that less than 5% of babies come on their due date. So we know that very few babies are going to come on that day anyway. And yeah, it is funny that we divide it into early and late, whereas we know it's a spectrum, isn't it? 37 to 42 weeks, we know that's considered normal. So that is really, really interesting. 
and being due or overdue. And I guess if something's overdue, then you've missed the boat. That's so interesting, that lexicon that you're right, that we've all absorbed as a society, not necessarily in, in medical, but just everywhere has kind of gone with that. I mean, there's so much about language that just needs to change. And I almost think I don't even know where to start. Where would you start? If you could take one phrase just out of birth and birthing and pregnancy, what would your campaign be to get a word removed? I really hate when midwives or doctors say that they delivered the baby. The mum delivered the baby. We helped support the birth. That would be my number one. I've never thought of that. Yeah. You deliver a pizza, you don't deliver a baby. And yet that's completely normalised, isn't it, that word? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look on like anything medical, we'd write, so if you had a vaginal birth, we'd write like SVD, so like standard vaginal delivery or spontaneous vaginal delivery, rather than like spontaneous vaginal birth. I find delivery quite problematic. And when I gave birth to Cecil and Wilfred, I delivered them. So I gave birth to them. No one else touched them. I was the one that brought them into the world. The midwife, she just stood at the end of the bed and was there. I was the one that gave birth to them. No one else touched them until I had done that. So very much I felt ownership of that. And not that these midwives did say that, but the concept that someone else delivered them. No, they did not. I delivered them. Yeah. And I think language is so important, isn't it? Because language is the lens with which we view the world. And I think about this a lot and I've done some amazing episodes in it. It's so hard if we start our motherhood experience feeling like our power's been taken away, if we start feeling disempowered. And that's unfortunately, seems to me, you'll have a way better view than me. It seems to be quite normal that that's how women begin their motherhood. What do you see? You know, you are in this. This is your world. It's your passion. You've written a book about it. Do you see that? So many women starting feeling like they've had their power taken away through that pregnancy and birthing experience. Yes, I do, which is really sad because I think we live in a society which is we practice quite defensively, I think, in the UK, and rightly or wrongly. And also there is a lot of medical intervention. And then you've got kind of your guidelines as well. And then you've got people's anecdotal experiences. And it's so hard to know who to trust. And really, you should be hopefully getting your evidence-based information from your practitioner, whether that's your doctor or your midwife. But actually, there's so many other things in play and that statistics don't necessarily reflect your individual experiences and people aren't necessarily empowered to go away and look in the right places for their research. And appointments are short and people run late and you might not have the time that you need to explore the best options for you. It's such a minefield because the system is so stretched. And I truly believe that midwives and doctors don't mean any harm at all. And they are doing the best that they can in such a challenging environment. But we know that it's so hard to accommodate the needs of everyone in a service which has been underfunded for many years. Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. The thing I love most about AG1 is that I know by having a really quick glass every morning, I am setting myself up for the rest of the day. It really supports me in feeling more energy, especially when I just haven't had enough sleep. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and more in one simple drinkable habit. It is completely science-driven. It is a formulation of vitamins, probiotics and whole food source nutrients. So for all us mums, we know how busy we are. So if you are looking for a way 
to take care of yourself that is quick and easy, you need to try AG1 and you will get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you need to do is go to drinkag1.com slash motherkind. That's drinkag1.com slash motherkind. And when you see those mothers who come into the hospital and they seem to be more empowered, more confident or able to advocate for themselves, what do you think the difference is there? Do you think it's education? Do you think it's personality? And how can more women leave that hospital feeling like the birth didn't go exactly how I wanted because I'm not sure many do, but I feel okay about it. I think education is key because as you've rightly said, we can't plan birth because we just don't know what's going to happen. And for the best will in the world, we could write an amazing kind of birth scenario, birth options, but actually sometimes things crop up during a labor that we just can't predict. But I think education is key because if you can understand why something happened, it's much easier to process it, isn't it? So if you understood, for example, that your baby wasn't in the optimal position for birth, and actually that was why the label was slightly longer, or if you could understand that for these X, Y, and Z reason, we're recommending that you have an induction or whatever it is. If you understand the reasons behind it, then you can a challenge it. If you don't feel that you agree, you can research it, but then you can also process it as well. Whereas if you're in a very stressful environment, for example, if you're in labor, that's not really the time to be doing your research, is it? You need to have done it beforehand. And antenatal education, I think, is incredible. It's so incredible. But again, there's not really any standards because you've got a lot of private companies sharing information. Then you've got NHS and not all NHS hospitals even provide antenatal education anymore. So it's a real mismatch of your postcode, what you can afford. You might not be able to afford private antenatal classes. You might not have access to NHS classes in your area. So it's such a lottery of what your education might be. And yeah, you're right. Education is one of the key things that can help women, I think. And I do think that tends to be the women who are slightly older that might a, have the resources to invest in their education, but also understand the importance of it. And that's not to say that all very young women are like that. Some are very passionate about education, but just on the whole, I think the trend is that slightly older women will invest that because they understand the importance of it. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you've seen more of your friends go through birth and postnatal, whatever their experience, it's going to make you think about yours. Whereas I imagine if you were very young in the first, you know, you wouldn't have that to reflect on. I wanted to talk to you about how to support people in our lives who are going through loss, miscarriage or IVF, because I think it's so easy to say the wrong thing I know that I've experienced this. When I so want to say the right thing, that's often when I end up saying the wrong thing. The pressure to try and make someone feel seen or feel loved can sometimes make us do the opposite of what we want to do. And I was wondering, what are some of the things that we shouldn't say or can be harmful or triggering? And what are some of the things that do feel really supportive and loving for people going through some of what you went through? So firstly, absolutely no shaming here. So I'm not shaming anyone if you have said some of these things because I'm 100% guilty of saying some of them. So the examples I'm going to tell you are all things that I have probably said to someone. So don't feel bad if you've said some of these things to your friends. But firstly, just get rid of the word just. That is a terrible word. So just relax. That is one of the worst things that you can say to someone who is trying to have a baby. It really kind of belittles the experience because 
probably were relaxed when you were first trying for a baby. And as the months have gone on, you're not getting pregnant because you weren't relaxed enough. Now, if we look at this in a really kind of scientific way, women conceive babies in extremely stressful environments, in war zones, in famines, in droughts. And so the body is under huge amounts of stress at that time. So you being stressed at your job is not the reason that you're not having a baby. So trying to imply that someone's not relaxed enough to have a baby is not helpful. I've definitely said that to people. So please don't feel guilty if you've said that. Also, things like just adopt, not helpful. That I find quite challenging because the adoption process isn't easy. So being like just adopt makes it seem like, oh, I can just go and get a baby. That's not how that works. That's not helpful. For people who have adopted, I find that's probably quite offensive to their experience of having to go through a very long adoption process to get their children. But also wanting a biological child is not wrong. So wanting to have a baby to experience pregnancy that's not wrong. So there's nothing wrong with exploring your options for having a baby, whether that is IVF. Adoption is a fantastic way to have a family. Of course it is. But it's not only for people who can't have biological children. Families who have got their own biological children can absolutely adopt. And so I feel like the narrative of just adopt is a bit like saying, well, oh, you know, just go and choose a baby. And that's just not the reality of it. And a few other phrases that I think are really unhelpful in terms of loss is, well, anything with the phrase at least. So at least it was early. That's not helpful. You can try again, at least, at least, at least. I just feel they really lack the insight of the lived experience. And again, I'm guilty of saying all of these things. And it's when you understand why they're hurtful that you know not to do them again. So things that you can do, which would be really supportive, is acknowledging the situation so that's really terrible or that's really hard for you I'm, I'm really sorry that that's happened to you I just feel like the acknowledgement is sometimes all you need to say with loss I think again all of this is really individualized so people feel differently but because I did have a, a bit of a later loss and my children have names Cecil and Wilfred I like to think of them as people they are people and so that for me is important acknowledging that I had two children and they died rather than thinking of it as like a loss or a heavy period which I think is what sometimes people think happens and so that for me is really important but that might not be the right thing for other people but just acknowledging that it was a baby can sometimes be so helpful because it's not just a bundle of cells because as soon as you see those two pink lines it's a baby to you isn't it so once that baby's gone It wasn't just the two pink lines have gone. It's everything that you dreamed. It was the birth. It was the breastfeeding. It was the first day at school. It's a whole lifetime of things that's gone. It's not just the pink lines faded. So I think just acknowledging that, but also asking. So sometimes if you don't know how someone is feeling about it, just say, look, I really understand you're going through a very difficult time at the moment. Do you want to talk about it? Is there something that you don't want to talk about? Just being really open and honest. And again, I'm not saying any of this to shame anyone. And there isn't really a right thing to do. But I think just try and be open and support in the best way that you know possible. It's so true. And that at least, you know, is said so often. My reflection on this is that sometimes I think as a society in general, and obviously I have to speak in general terms, we're so emotionally illiterate sometimes that we find it hard to sit in someone else's pain. And saying at least, I think it comes from a good place, but I know that when I've done it, it's because I've wanted that person to feel better. 
often because it's so painful for me to see someone in so much pain. But that isn't what that person needs. Brené Brown talks about this. You need a friend who's going to sit in the shit with you. And maybe there aren't any words. Maybe it's just sitting together in the pain of it. But that definitely takes an emotional bandwidth and an emotional maturity that I think a lot of us just aren't taught. So that's when we get this sort of toxic positivity, looking for the bright side, you know, all that rubbish really, because it doesn't actually help the other person. But I think it's symptomatic of a bigger challenge that we face as a society. Yeah, I feel like we're such a silver linings culture, aren't we? Yeah, I completely agree with everything you just said. And I find myself doing it as well. If I ever hear something that's slightly not gone right, I'm always trying to put a positive spin on it. But you're right, sometimes we do just have to sit and acknowledge that someone else is in pain and that's really, really tough. And also, actually, what I know from infertility and baby loss is that it's not just my pain, actually. The ripples really go much further than you would think. So I feel like my whole family has been really affected by it. And so it isn't just mine and my husband's pain anymore. The pain is actually several people's pain. And, you know, it's my mum who lost her grandchildren. It's my sister, my brother who lost their nephews. It's so many people's pain. And actually, we all have our own ways of navigating pain. And, you know, it could be your friend's pain. There is so much pain. Everyone has their own pain. Everyone has their own stuff going on in their lives. But you're totally right. Just acknowledging that things are bad for another person takes a lot of strength of yourself. And actually, sometimes you might not be in the right place to offer that. But I think just trying to move away from the silver linings is, I think, more positive than trying to put a positive spin on it. I completely agree. It's that validation piece. I think, you know, whenever we're going through something, what we really want is to be seen in that, is to be seen in it and to be to be validated. And I think sometimes that sounds so simple, but it's really hard to do actually, because it's not often our first reaction. What do you think needs to change about how our healthcare system supports couples and families going through loss and IVF and miscarriage. And I know that there's recently been a a law change, hasn't there, which is incredible. But what else do you think needs to change so that this feels more supportive? So you mentioned, yeah, the independent pregnancy loss review, which I'm really excited about. I think there's going to be some incredible changes coming from that, which is very much needed. In terms of infertility, I think just in terms of our employment, there needs to be much more support from that. So no one wants to be going through IVF, but it is a massive commitment. It takes such a lot of time. You might be going to your clinic every day. You might be going every other day, not to mention the physical side effects that you're going through. So I really feel that there needs to be much more support in the workplace for people who are going through that. I think that would really help change people's attitudes towards infertility. And then also just in terms of medical treatment of infertility, there's a lot of emphasis on the woman. We know that about 50% it's male infertility, 50% is female infertility. And it is unfairly biased towards the woman because even if it was male infertility, the IVF does take place in the woman's body. So there is a natural bias towards the woman anyway. But I think that there is a lot more that could be done to understand that fertility issue is not just a female issue. For example, when we went to various clinics, I would have maybe like a six or eight page questionnaire and my husband would have like one side of A4 to fill out. And once he'd kind of got the sign off that his sperm count was fine, that was it. 
he did not need to be included in any further discussions. So it really felt like there could just be much more support. And and kind of moving on to baby loss as well, support for partners is so important. And I really don't feel like there's very much at all for partners. So we were given a few leaflets when we left the hospital and there was one for support for partners. That was it. There was nothing else. We weren't given any counselling. There was really very little mental health support offered to us. And particularly in my subsequent pregnancy with Percy, when I was very unwell, I was rejected from perinatal services three times. There was literally no one to support me through the pregnancy. And thankfully, hopefully the pregnancy loss review is going to help change that. But I was very, very alone and very unwell. I'm so sorry you had that. You would think, given your experience of having lost Cecil and Wilfred, that you would be right at the top of the list for supporting your next pregnancy? I think it really depends, again, postcode lottery of where you live. And so the hospital that I was working at and having my pregnancy care was not where I lived. And so it was very disjointed, but it really depends on the local area. And so I'm sure there are some fantastic places out there who are providing excellent care, but that was not the case for me. And I really feel that that has to change. I feel like there is such a gap in the support for pregnant women who have lived through infertility or loss. It's an anxiety-inducing time anyway, and then it must be, you know, plus, gosh, tens on top if you have gone through loss of any sort. You know, I know after I'd had those two miscarriages how much more anxious I was when I was carrying my second daughter. It's very different than the first. And again, I don't think that's talked about or understood enough. I sort of think that if you've had a miscarriage, once you get to 12 weeks, everyone assumes that you must feel fine about it now because you're in the, and air quotes, safe zone. But actually, there is no safe zone, unfortunately. I think any midwife knows that. But also, once you've lived through something terrible happening, your brain just keeps telling you that more terrible things will happen. Yes, I might have had a first trimester miscarriage before and I might be 16 weeks pregnant now, but that doesn't mean that I've forgotten that I had a miscarriage and that everything will be fine. And I definitely have been guilty of that as a midwife, just being so positive that everything's going to be okay, that you lose that insight that you haven't forgotten about the previous pregnancies. Yeah. And I I know that, you know, I was in such a privileged position that I was able to get some private support after those two miscarriages. And I actually realized through that private support, which was something called somatic, which is where pain sits in your body, basically, I realized how much trauma I was holding onto in my body that I was able to release. But that's only because I was so privileged that I was able to to pay for it. I mean, that should be, yeah, it really does need more support. It really, really does. So we've talked about language I really wanted to speak to you about. We've spoken about supporting a friend and I wanted to talk to you about what's it like going through secondary infertility because you know again it's just a huge taboo that isn't talked about and I'm sure you've had that at leasting at least you've got Percy but again it's just completely devaluing the really hard experience of that secondary infertility tell us about that I wouldn't actually describe myself as have secondary infertility. I would say that I have primary infertility for the second time. So secondary infertility is where you conceived your first child spontaneously without any help and then gone on to experience infertility. And I think those two are quite different. So I knew I was going to have trouble conceiving a second, well, my fourth child, hopefully, 
because I'd been infertile before. And I think perhaps secondary infertility can be very shocking if you've had no problems conceiving your first child. But you're absolutely right. So I don't really get that much at leasting, but I can sometimes feel that people are thinking it, even if they're not saying it. So like, at least you have Percy. Well, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have Percy. You don't need to remind me how lucky I am. But I love Percy so much. He is so incredible that of course I want to do it all over again because he's so special. He is, and obviously every parent thinks their child's amazing, but my child is very amazing. And I love, you know, I would love to have another one of him. Obviously not, he wouldn't be the same, but I want to do it all over again because I found it so amazing. I have loved motherhood. I love being a parent. And yes, I want to do it again. There is nothing wrong with that. I think no one would question a parent about having a second child. Like you said before, people are often expecting, where's the second child? So why is it that I have to be happy with having one, but no one else has to be questioned in that way? It's my money, it's my body, and I want Percy to have a living sibling. And so that is why I am trying again. So we've since I had Percy had four rounds of IVF, all of them have been unsuccessful. But I don't feel like I have to justify wanting a sibling because no one else has to justify it. And you can hold more than one thing at the same time. So I can be very grateful for having Percy, but I can also want another baby. They're not mutually exclusive things. It's so true. And I'm so sorry, you know, for what you're experiencing. It must be unbelievably hard to not only have, you know, a job and a book and be going through the really intensive process that we've talked about of IVF. How do you care for yourself through all of that? That is a very good question. So when I was going through infertility before, I was working part-time because infertility is a full-time job for me. The amount of appointments I was having was ridiculous. And so that really helped me get through the process. Whereas now you're right, I'm working full-time. I do obviously a lot of stuff outside of my day job. I've written a book. I have to look after Percy. So I really don't feel like I get that much kind of self-care time at the moment. But I understand that fertility is time limited. I will not have this opportunity forever to try for a baby. We all know that you go through the menopause and that's that. There's no babies after that. So I really feel that I need to focus this time on having a baby because once it's gone, it's gone. I won't ever have that opportunity again. So I probably need to prioritize that a little bit more, but I do get a lot of satisfaction from speaking about infertility or helping other people with infertility. So I guess that I kind of live and breathe infertility all day, every day. So I don't really have like a magic answer. I don't really know how I look after myself. I mean, when we were going through infertility the first time around, I tried everything, acupuncture, I tried Reiki, I've tried tapping, I've tried everything, eating everything organic, having massage, you know, you name it, I've tried it. And spoiler alert, it didn't work. But at the same time, sometimes thinking that you're doing something for yourself can be really powerful. I think a lot of parents don't have that much time for themselves. And so I don't feel like I'm particularly different in that respect. But yeah, I don't feel like I am particularly prioritizing my self-care at the moment. Although I did, I think I saw you did a thing about self-care is just a big industry anyway. Maybe I'm I'm rebelling against that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely need to manage our own energy and emotions. I think the word self-care has become, not the concept of it, but the word of it has become commoditized. And I think that's the problem that I have with it. So I call it 
energy management because I think we all need to think about how is my emotional energy? How is my physical energy? How is my spiritual energy? How am I? Because of course that impacts how we parent, who we are, how we live. It impacts everything, doesn't it? So I think, yeah, that's why I I ditched that phrase self-care because I noticed more and more when I was talking about it, people were getting defensive. And I think that's because it's been so linked to bubble baths and candles that, you know, every parent I know just doesn't have access to that time or money. So that's why I changed it. I've absolutely loved this conversation and you've really made me think about a lot of things, particularly around language and how we support each other. And I think it's through awareness and education that we become more compassionate and empathetic as a society. And I think it's, you know, books and interviews like this that help us do that. So thank you so much. And the question that I ask every time at the end is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? We actually touched on it earlier, but it would be education. I think that education in your body particularly, and I guess this kind of links to a bit of pre-motherhood, but like what happens in your body, that would be my gift. So, you know, a real good understanding of the menstrual cycle and what hormones are in play and how they can affect your body. Actually, what you need to conceive a baby, I would love to gift that to everyone. I know that would be for people who aren't necessarily mothers yet, but that would be my gift. And then once you're pregnant, like what happens in your body to grow a baby? Like it's incredible. That's why I love being a midwife because every day I'm like, wow, this amazing thing is happening inside of you. And then like particularly postpartum as well, just, I would just love to give like a big guide of this is what happens to your body throughout kind of the lifespan of being a woman. I mean, we so need that. We so need that. Maybe that'll be your next book. Gosh, that would be more like a <laughs> like a a, a a series, yeah. <laughs> it would be a bit of a tome. Well, thank you so much. And tell us when is your book out and where can people find more about you and the work that you do? So my book was out on the 31st of August, so it's available to buy now. You can buy it on Amazon or Waterstones or other independent platforms as well. You can also find me on Instagram as the Infertile Midwife as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And I will see you soon. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you found it insightful. I hope you found it educational. And I hope that it's made you think a little bit differently about loss and IVF and infertility. I know that's exactly what it did for me. Please do share the episode. Please do rate and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. It makes a massive difference. And I will see you next time.